0: Hello and welcome back to Across the States, everyone. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, as usual, coming to you here from the American Legislative Exchange Council. And today we have two special guests with us, as well as our own Andrew Handel, the Director of Education and Workforce Development Task Force here at Calic. Andrew, as you all know, is a key and special contributor himself. But today we have two people from EdChoice as well joining us. Mike McShane and Jason Bedriff. the organization EdChoice, are here with us today to discuss education reform. Michael Jason and Andrew, welcome to Across the States. How are you guys doing? Great. Thank you. Doing very well. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you on. I know right now education reform is so important considering all the school choice bills going before state legislators right now. State houses across the country are deliberating and pushing these bills. In fact, just last year, a third of all US states, in fact, enacted an expansion or created school choice programs for their citizens. So I think this is an incredibly important topic. And I'll hand off to you, Andrew, to steer us through this discussion. Andrew, take it away.
1: All right. Thanks, Matt. And thank you as well to Jason and Mike for joining us. Both of you just published new reports on the EdChoice website. Jason, your report is Who's Afraid of School Choice? And Mike released a report titled The Accountability Myth. And I think both of these are, you know, really, really good pieces of research, you know, particularly to help policymakers as they formulate these arguments and have these debates across the country in uh, various legislative sessions. So um, Jason, we'll go ahead and start with you with your report, Who's Afraid of School Choice? Can you just give us an overview of the report and some of your key findings? Yeah, so the main
2: question that we're looking at is what is the effect of having a robust school choice program in your state on not the participating students, but those who remain in their public schools? And the reason is because over and over for decades, whenever somebody has proposed a school choice bill, you hear the opponent saying, oh, this is going to destroy the public school system, right? I mean, what's going to happen? All the families who really care about education, well, if they had a choice, they would leave. Obviously, they wouldn't stay in the public school system, right? They would leave. And then that means that the best students are going to leave and the public schools are going to be left with the hardest to teach students and less resources to teach them. And that's just going to lead to a downward spiral, right? So this is the argument that you hear from opponents, which is interesting that it's coming from opponents, right? That they really lack faith in the system that they are supporting and assume that if parents had a choice, they would leave. Now, this may have been a legitimate concern in the early 90s when school choice programs were really being proposed in a serious way for the first time, because there was a lot of uncertainty. Who knows what's going to happen? But now we've got three decades of experience with what happens. And so we can definitively say that these chicken little concerns are just that. The sky is not going to fall. So what the report does is we start by looking at the five states that have the oldest and most robust school choice programs in the country. So that would be Arizona, Florida, Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin. So all of these states have uh, at least 3.5% of students participating in a school choice program. In Arizona, it's about 7% of of students participating. And all of them are at least a decade old. In some cases, they're three decades old. And the question is, what has happened, right? If the opponents of school choice were correct, then these are the states where we would see the deterioration of the public school system. But as a matter of fact, what we see is exactly the opposite.
1: And just to expound on that a, a little bit, you have this quote in the report, actually, from former Florida State Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who I believe it was in 1999 said, quote, this is the day that will go down in the annals of Florida history as the day we abandoned the public schools and the day that we abandoned, more importantly, our children. And of course, to your point, if my numbers are correct here, Florida since that time has seen the second largest increase in NAEP scores at the fourth grade level and the third largest increase in NAEP scores at the eighth grade level.
2: That's right. And their NAEP gains, NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, that's um, called the Nation's Report Card, it's a test that's uh, administered all across the country. Their NAEP gains over the last two decades have far outpaced the national average and Florida has the state with the second most students per capita participating in a school choice program. So, in all of those five states, we've actually seen gains in their test scores over time. Now, that alone, raw data, raw test score data, doesn't prove that school choice is driving it. What it does do is disprove the opponent's concern that school choice is going to destroy public education. But you can dig deeper. There are actually 28 academic studies that looked at the competitive effects of school choice programs, right? So in other words, what are the effects once you introduce a school choice program? What are the effects on the performance of the traditional public school system? 25 out of 28 of these studies found statistically significant positive effects from school choice, meaning that school choice is really the rising tide that lifts all ships. When families have a wide variety of educational options to choose from among, it not only benefits those students who are participating, but it actually makes all schools more directly accountable to families, and therefore leads to improved performance in a systemic way.
1: And I'm curious on those studies. Did any of them take a look at the widespread availability of a school choice program? So in other words, you know, obviously we have some school choice programs in the country, which are very, very, very small. They have tight enrollment Mm -hmm. caps. They have tight eligibility restrictions. But then we also have some like the HOPE Scholarship Program, which just passed in West Virginia and will be implemented later this year, where 93% of kids are eligible on day one. Did you find that as the program grows larger, then the academic outcomes or the positive outcomes associated with that program grow larger with it?
2: Yeah. So essentially what number of these studies do is they look at how close the nearest competitor is to a public school. They look at how many different, you know, within a certain radius, how many different options are available and how many different types of options. Is it all the same type of private school? Like there's three Catholic schools, or is it that there's a Catholic school, there's a school that's focusing on STEM. There's a classical education school, right? So they look at sort of the mix. And what they do find is that when you look at these different measures, the more robust the competition is, the more options there are available, the stronger the positive effects are. The study of the largest school choice program in the country, which is Florida's, the most recent one by Dr. David Figlio and his team, actually said, quote, they found, quote, consistent evidence that as more students use scholarships to attend private schools, students in public schools are more likely to experience heightened competition due to the program, right? And especially what they're seeing, things like positive effects on math and reading scores, but also they're more likely to graduate, they're less likely to be absentee or to be suspended. So there's really a lot of evidence that there are positive effects, not just on test scores, but on some of these other educational outcomes that we care about.
1: Yeah. And you also have a section in the report that talks about how much money we actually spend on public school students. And it's amazing. And I know if you could just go over some of the polling that EdChoice has done on this, because I, I think it's really important. I think it's over 80% of parents and Americans in general underestimate the total amount of spending per pupil in RK through 12 public schools. And you know, once you give them, and again, I'll let you dive into this with the polling, but once you tell them how much is actually being spent, there's a pretty dramatic flip in the numbers. So could you just uh, go over some of that for us?
3: Yes. So Andrew, I think you're exactly right that we and we're not the only people that have found this in polling, Americans dramatically underestimate how much public schools spend. Usually when we ask the question, folks say it's in like the four to $5,000 per child per year range. And depending on what state you're in, it's anywhere from two, three, four, even five times that. And Andrew, you're right. So that's what we might call a naive question, where we just ask people, do your schools spend too much or spend too little, or what do they spend? And again, they underestimate. And not surprisingly, I think, quite reasonably, if you thought schools spent $4,000 a year, you'd say, oh yeah, they don't spend enough money. Well, when we tell people what they actually spend, those numbers do tend to come down. I think usually in the neighborhood of around 20 points, the number of people who who say that. So so yes, people underestimate it based on that. And I should say, they do the same thing with teacher salaries. And again, look, I get it. If you thought that teachers made half of what they actually do, if you thought schools spend a third of what they actually do, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say teachers are underpaid and schools are underfunded. But when we actually put the real numbers out there,
2: opinions change. Yeah, and one interesting fact is that teachers who you would expect, since they're in the system, they would have better information they are actually more likely than the average American to underestimate how much is being spent. So teachers guessed around $5,000 on average is what is spent per pupil when the reality is closer to about $15,000 per pupil. So this is likely the result of a persistent disinformation campaign by the teachers' unions and, and other Public school establishment organizations that uh, have frankly just been lying to teachers about how much is being spent in the system.
1: Mm-hmm. Great, thanks, Jason. And uh, you know I'll go back to Mike for your report, the accountability myth, which I thought was fantastic. you You split accountability into three sections: financial, democratic, and academic. And um, you know I'm just wondering, can you kind of go through that and and what your findings in the report were?
3: Sure. I mean, it's good because it actually builds off the conversation that we were just having about sort of misunderstandings of how much money is spent on schools. Basically, the piece that I wrote, the paper, is responding to a common argument that school choice advocates hear. Whenever in a state house, someone proposes a school choice bill where money would go to private schools or even would go to charter schools or other kind of non-district public schools, You hear this thing, no, we can't do that because, you see, public schools are accountable and private schools aren't. And the thing is, a lot of private school choice advocates respond to that by saying, no, 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 private schools are accountable. And I want to be 100% clear. They are absolutely correct when they say that. The piece that I wanted to write was rather than sort of buttress that argument, because that's pretty well-worn ground. And obviously, if you think about it, right, parents can leave. (laughs) Parents are paying for it. They have lots of skin in the game in this case. I wanted to actually sort of attack the other side of that argument, which is this, I think, mistaken belief that public schools are accountable. And so you're right. I said, well, what are the ways in which we think about holding schools accountable? And I talked about financial accountability, I talked about academic accountability, and I talked about democratic accountability. And a lot of the financial stuff is what we were just talking about. It is very clear. You can't hold someone accountable for their spending if you don't know how much they're spending, right? Like you wouldn't do it with your own budget. You wouldn't do the budget of some business. You wouldn't do it with anybody. If someone came to you and said, I'm broke, but I can't tell you how much money I spent or what I spent it on. It's like, well, it's tough to hold you accountable for that. So um, so that's, what, that's one piece of the puzzle, though, is that... We don't know how much schools spend. It's actually quite difficult to find that data. We at EdChoice, through a project called Project Nickel, are trying to do better with that and make it clearer how much it is. But to your average taxpayer, really difficult to understand. And so we don't hold schools accountable. And again, this is before, remember, they just spent $190 billion on three federal coronavirus bills. I'm talking about your, your regular meat and potato school spending. This is even the stuff on top of that, which is just... Disappearing into opacity.
1: Yeah, and I actually was just reading about a school district in Texas that took its federal COVID relief money and put it towards a local nature center, which (laughs) obviously has very little to do with the students' education. You know, maybe they take a field trip there, but to your point, you know, it took a reporter digging into that and, you know, finding that out it wasn't very transparent. And, you know, I think, you know, more broadly, that's why we're we're seeing this push nationally for transparency in the academics when it comes to curriculum and, and other things. Because for years, schools have not been accountable and they've been able to just keep that stuff hidden. But I'd like to just go back for a minute. I know you mentioned Project Nickel, which is something that EdChoice has been working on. I was just wondering if you could provide an overview of that. It's got a lot of really great data, uh, really the only website that I've seen thus far that compiles all of the uh, publicly available data on per-people spending and school-by-school statistics. So yeah, i wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit.
3: Yeah, for sure. The big innovation of that, or there's really sort of two big innovations there, is one is it collects school-by-school spending data. So you can understand how much your local public school across town, or school across the country spends per child per year, And it puts it together in a simple, searchable, map based interface. The big innovation when it comes to school level data, for the longest time, until actually quite recently, school spending data was only aggregated to the district level. Sort of once money went into the district coffers, you didn't know where it went. And I think anecdotally, any of us had seen if you drove around like a big school district somewhere, like some schools looked nicer than others. Wonder Where's that? How did that exactly work out? And another thing, too, is that if you know that the biggest line item that you see in schools are salaries, and you know that salaries are based on how many years teachers teach generally, and you can look at the differences among schools, wow, that school has a lot of veteran teachers, that school has a lot of new teachers, you'll know that that's going to drive big differences between school spending. So Project Nickel, we knew that, again, kind of anecdotally, but we didn't know the full extent of it. Project Nickel has done this awesome job where you can actually see it. You can see oh, hey, look, this school clearly has a whole bunch of veteran teachers. They're spending twice per kid what a school down the street is doing. So I highly encourage everyone to check it out, both to get kind of to that misinformation, disinformation, just abject wrongness that's out there to understand that question a little bit better, but I think also to look within districts to see, even if you have an understanding of what those averages are, how does it actually play out at the school-by-school level? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And one of the most common arguments that we always hear against school choice is it would take money away from the public schools. And a lot of that argument is rooted in, you know, this belief that, you know, we're not spending enough. So that's why I wanted to make sure we gave you some time to talk about Project Nickel, because I, you know, I do think that, you know, the more we educate the public on how much is actually being spent per student, like it's not 5000 it's $15,000. That only drives support for school choice even higher. But, you know, I'd like to turn for a moment, you know, one of those accountability areas that you mentioned in the report is democratic accountability. And you highlighted, you know, how school board elections are held off cycle. So there's very low turnout. There's very little voter engagement. You know, bond elections tend to use very unclear and muddy language that's confusing, so I was wondering if you could just kind of, you know, talk about your your findings there as well.
3: Yeah, it's actually funny. As we were setting up this podcast, like arranging it last week, I was looking on Twitter and my home state school boards association, the state of Missouri, where I'm, I'm originally from Kansas City, was trying to pass a bill to move school board elections on cycle. So again, for those of you who are not familiar with this, Almost all of us know when election day is in in November, and yet that's not when our school board elections take place. They often take place on a random Tuesday in June, as you might imagine, and as a lot of political science research will tell us, that drives down turnout in these elections massively. Some might call it a form of voter suppression, but we don't know. I don't know, that may be a bridge too far in the sense... What those words mean, which is like trying to suppress something, drive down the number of people to do it. It's very clear. Again, we know that it happens. We see that this is what's going on there. And as a result of that, that allows organized interest groups. When you have smaller numbers of people that are actually voting in this, organized interest groups have an outsized advantage in organizing in these elections and others. And who are the biggest players in education? Teachers unions, administrators unions, alphabet soup organizations. Exactly. Exactly. What's funny is, so the state of Missouri was trying to pass a bill to move these elections on cycle. And almost like clockwork, the state school boards association, which is essentially the association of all of the 518 school boards that are in Missouri, came out against it. And you're like, wait, what? Why would you come out against a bill that's trying to drive up interest and turnout in your elections? Mm -hmm. And so that's when I say, I don't think that Most public schools are held democratically accountable because the check on them is supposed to be these local school board elections. And these school board elections are essentially manipulated to drive down turnout and to overweight organized interests. And so you're again, your average citizen, we said in the first instance that they don't know how much schools are spending or where it's going. And now in the second instance, they don't always know when the election is taking place, when it's happening, doesn't get the same. Play that a gubernatorial or that a state or even a mayor city council election would have. And therefore, it makes it much more difficult for them to use the ballot box to hold schools accountable.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even as a voter, when you are trying to be informed, like I know the county I just recently moved into, you know, we had an election, a school board election that came up just a few weeks after we moved. And so the first thing I'm trying to do is find these candidates and see, you know, who do I want to vote for. Half of them didn't even have a campaign website. You know, they sure. weren't campaigning, they weren't fundraising. There was no information on what their policy positions were for the school district, and that made it impossible for me as as a new voter to figure out well who who do I want to vote for. So to your point exactly, it's a huge huge problem. So Jason, in the second half of your report, you mentioned that there's varying levels of intensity with regard to the arguments against school choice. I was just wondering, could you tell us, you know, how did you see the intensity of those arguments against school choice varying with the size and scope of the program being discussed?
2: Yeah, so the interesting thing is that we didn't see much variation. So one might expect that like let's say last year with West Virginia. West Virginia, they were considering a nearly universal ESA. Every single child in the state who's either switching out of a public school or entering kindergarten is eligible and funded. So that's 93% of kids in the state. You might expect that the rhetorical intensity of opponents would be very, very high, but then for a state like, let's say, Arkansas, where fewer than 0.1% of children were eligible and funded to participate in their tax credit scholarship, you might see a lot more moderation. The rhetorical intensity might not be that high. So what we did is we came up with, it's a one to 11 scale. So it's sort of mild criticism up to 10, which would be uh, catastrophic concern. And then we added 11, sort of in the spirit of Spinal Tap, you know, for those who turn it all the way up to 11 with their apocalyptic concerns that this is going to, you know, be the end of public education in our state. And what we found is looking at five different states, so Arkansas, Kentucky, and Missouri, where there was fewer than 1% of kids eligible and funded in each of those states, or New Hampshire, where a third were eligible and funded. And then West Virginia, as I mentioned, you had more than nine out of 10 eligible and funded. It was an average of an eight, but there was no correlation you know, across these states between the size and scope of the bill and the intensity of the opposition. Uh, as a matter of fact, West Virginia was right at the median at an eight, and Arkansas, which had the fewest kids eligible to participate, was an 8.6, which was our highest score, and We were looking here at the rhetoric of policymakers, you know, especially legislators and the governor, but also district school officials and various interest groups and commentators, people who are writing op-eds and editorials. So we looked all across the board. And what we did find also is that in every single state, there was at least a few individuals or organizations that did turn their critique all the way up to 11. So even in Arkansas, you had folks saying things like, you know, this is the end of public education as we know it. This is the beginning and the end of public schools. In Kentucky, you had a state representative saying, we once again see public education with its neck inside a guillotine getting ready to have its head cut off. So I think the message or or the lesson for legislators who are considering filing school choice legislation is that whether you have a program that is for everybody or something that's only for 10 kids in the state, the opponents are going to come at you rhetorically with everything they've got. So don't expect that by moderating the size and scope of the bill, you're going to induce the opposition to moderate their rhetorical intensity. They're going to come at you with everything. So you may as well go big, go bold. We see that consistently in polls, when supporters of school choice generally are asked if they prefer... A program that's available to all families versus one that's limited or targeted based on things like financial need, overwhelmingly, they support universal bills. In our latest poll from 2021, more than three out of four voters said that they preferred ESAs be available to all families, where it was about 50 50 support for one that was based on financial need. So I would say go with the voters, go big, and
0: empower every single child with educational opportunity. Well, thank you all for joining us again on Across the States. Michael McShane, Jason Bedrick, and Andrew Handel, thank you all for um, joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listeners for joining us for another edition of Across the States. Be sure to stay tuned for more from the Premier State Policy Podcast. I'll talk to you all then.
3: Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alex States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.